folks. In this episode, there's some discussion of sexual violence. It starts around minute 49, where you'll hear a musical cue, and ends around minute 51, where there will be another musical cue. Um, usually we have something quirky to say before we talk. Anybody want to do that? Is that the quirky thing? Did you just say it? Did I? <laughs> And welcome to Tortal Recall, the podcast where we reread the Tamara Pierce books and yell about them. Uh, my name is Abby, and my pronouns are she, her. My name's Aurora, and my pronouns are she, her. Uh, my name's Grace, and my pronouns are she, her. My name's Gus, and my pronouns are they, them. So, um, I think we're just gonna go right back into the yell zone with this one. Yeah, let's introduce the book first. Yeah, yeah, no, I just mean in general, there's a lot to yell about here. The book that we read is The Woman Who Rides Like a Man, book three of the Alana series. Possible, well, okay, I mean, the last one was pretty low. I think after this, it really is going to start getting better. Is it? I hope so. Mm. Well, we'll see. Let's, let's move into our first section, First Adventure, where the adventure is that we try to remember what happened in the book. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I could not find it, but... At one point, I had an 80s edition or, like, 90s edition of this book, and the, like, blurb on the back was warrior or wife. Oh, my God. It was great and terrible. Um, Which is actually kind of accurate, unfortunately. <laughs> it is. It's, like, it's not an inaccurate, like, summary. It's just that you read it and you go, oh, dear. Um, <laughs> oh, no. The... Blurb on the back of the copy that I actually read um, starts with the quote, let her prove herself worthy as a man. Wow, that's really loaded too. I would say that's worse. <laughs> yeah, my my blurb is just Alana alone, which doesn't really tell you much and also is not very accurate because most of her friends show up in this book. It's deeply inaccurate. <laughs> oh, you have the same book I do. Oh yeah, we Cute. do have the same copy. I love it because she has a glowing sword and like glowing purple fire in her hand. The cover art is my everything. I really loved it. Now, as a kid, her horse is so flowy. Her hair is so, everything's flowy. It's beautiful. It's very flowy. She has a flowy cape good stuff oh man i just noticed but my copy in my copy faithful is sitting in the in the in the animal the faithful cup on the saddle oh nice yeah in the edition that aurora and i have faithful's just sort of on the horse with her but i'm he looks uncomfortable yeah not super comfortable i appreciate the cup version because yours is more accurate to the text it is it's very very textually accurate and olana looks terrifying and i love her um, but, okay, so, so, an actual summary of this book, though. Um, Alana, oh, oh, okay, so I want to start first by talking about the very end of In the Hand of the Goddess. Um, okay. Which, as we all know, was an episode I was not on. Um, so, I just wanted to, uh, note that when I was finishing reading In the Hand of the Goddess, um, I texted Abby and said, is the third book in Song of the Lioness the eat, pray, love of this series. Um, <laughs> so, because the way that it is framed, both at the 
um, end of the second book and at the beginning of the third book is that Alana is going on this journey for personal growth. You know, she needs to spend some time away from the palace and away from her friends in order to learn who she is. And the way she winds up doing that is visiting um, a culture that is foreign to her or that is mostly foreign to right, her. Right, to like find herself. To like find herself. And it's weird because the way... There, there's a there's a weird amount that Alana is like has very little intent in the things that happen to her in this book. Um, she you know she doesn't try to join the tribe. She just like she she fights a man and then they're like now you're part of the tribe. Yeah, that's I mean that's something we'll get into. Yes, but yeah. we'll we'll get into this. Um, so she you know she joins the the Bloody Hawk, a Bajir tribe, and is like inducted into their tribe and becomes one of them and mm -hmm. uh she and then she duels their their um shaman and then because she has killed the shaman she becomes the new shaman yeah and she adopts some apprentices she doesn't adopt them i don't know why I she said that. takes on some apprentices they like start living with her and stuff. she gains some apprentices she teach she teaches some kids <laughs> Yeah, she teaches some kids, and they're great, and she teaches Except them. how she vanishes one of them? Yeah, she does vanish one of them. We'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, that part's not so great, but yeah, right, mm -hmm. so so she takes on some apprentices, one of them does not do so hot, <laughs> the other two do fine. Yes. Then Jonathan shows up also in this oh, book. God. Oh god. Yes, um, Jonathan and Miles show up. Miles is great. We love Miles. We love him. Or I love Miles. We love Miles. We love Miles. Um, World's best dad. Miles is, honest to God, I think the best part of this book. I agree. Okay. It's true. I, I think I totally also <laughs> agree. I love Miles. I think we should speed up this recap a little bit. We're... No, it feels very accurate to the reading experience of the book. Yeah. Does somebody else want to try like doing the rest of this? Okay. Alana goes on a problematic gap year trip. To the desert, joins a tribe, <laughs> adopts some, well, takes on some apprentices, vanishes one of them. Jonathan shows up, pressures her to marry him. She's like, I don't know, dude. And then he's like, too late. I already decided. And it's yes. And then she's like, oh, God. No, wrong. And then, um, so Jonathan leaves. Oh, Miles adopts her because he's her dad. Um, and then she goes to visit uh, George in a different city. Uh, Tom's doing some weird stuff. Back in chorus. And then George just has his own little subplot that Alana's not in. Yes. He just has, he gets his own chapter. Where he has enemies, his throne is being threatened. We've never had anything from the point of view of George before, but you know, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's normal. Yeah. Yeah. So she defeats the old shaman. She's the shaman of the tribe. Jonathan becomes also a very important person playing like a big political role for the entire Bazir people. Um, right, and I mean, then... kind of the le the like cultural leader of their people, it seems like, a little bit, magically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's more or less what happens in that book. And then also there's like a little, a little fun mission that Alana goes on at the end that's largely unrelated, where she goes to rescue a sorceress from a town. And I mean... Yeah. yeah. The end was really a prequel to the next book. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yeah. tie in nicely as a cohesive whole with the beginning half. Didn't that yeah. final mission remind you so much of Mercedes Lackey, Abby? So much. Yeah, I was going to... Let's let's table that for a minute, but, like, yes, we got to talk about that. 
Okay, but yeah, let's move on. First Adventure is where we talk about, we're talking about our background with the book. When did you guys first read this book? I first read this book when I was, I don't remember what age, but I think I've only read it once, and um, uh, I read it by listening to it on audiobook, which means that I absorbed even less of it than I did of the other books. So while I had some impressions going in of what would happen in this book, I pretty much only knew that Alana goes and lives with the Bashir and it there's a white savior narrative. That's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I had a really similar experience. So when I went back to get my Alana books from my parents' house, I realized I didn't own this one. Um, I have the first, second, and fourth. And I think when I was younger and I would reread them, I would reread the first, second, and fourth. Um, <laughs> but this book I did not own, and I actually had to buy it on Kindle and read it on my computer. Um, and I was a little annoyed about it. Um, but uh, so, yeah, similarly to Gus, I had, like, no salient memories of details of this book. I sort of knew, like, the arc, but it was not, to me, part of the Alana narrative that I remembered. Because I think I read it one time. Yeah, so so same thing. I, um, I've actually never read this book, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. I don't really know how that happened. I just skipped it. And then when I reread books, I only read first, second, and fourth. Um, so, but, you know, I had read the fourth book, and I actually had actually read the fourth book pretty recently. So I knew that, you know, I knew that Jonathan had become the voice of the tribes and that they had been inducted into a tribe and stuff. And... I knew that Jonathan had, uh, that they had been inducted into the tribes and that there was this whole narrative about the Bajir. And, um, I, honestly, it's not as bad as I was kind of worried it would be from that. I mean, it's real bad, but, like, there are a couple redeeming elements that I was not necessarily expecting because of, uh, what I had deduced from the fourth book, so. Yeah, no, I had a kind of similar experience rereading though I had read it a few times before. Uh, I read it, I mean, re I reread these books multiple times, so I must have reread this one, uh, starting when I was like uh, 11 or 12. Uh, and when I first read it, there were parts I really did like, mm -hmm. you know, with regard to like her students mm -hmm. and magic and friendship, but also anything concerning John, <sighs> even as a small child, I thought was absolute garbage. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I hated John so much as a small child, and I really thought that was just me, but it turns out to be totally borne out by the canon. No, he's a jerk. He does not come off as a romantic hero. I'm kind of waiting to see how it pulls through in the fourth book, but... Yeah. <laughs> uh, it'll be great. Uh, but as a kid, this did also have my favorite cover art, as we discussed before. It's just everything's flowy. The color scheme is on point. Really good color scheme. <laughs> I, I think I mostly like the horse. They always talk about her good horse friend, but so well done. The cover art on my Kindle copy is really ugly. Oh no. We will have to tweet some pictures later. Yeah, so um, I guess let's just move on to the next section, um, run the Dominion Jewels and talk about general sort of plot structure and stuff. We're back to being really episodic. We are, for the most part. I don't know. I really felt like 
you know, things happened in the first, most of this book, Mm -hmm. but it really, it really felt like there was sort of a status quo and she, you know, like little things were happening. It was sort of her day-to-day life kind of, rather than there being any sort of adventure. I guess what I mean is more that like there's, it feels like maybe two separate books because the part where she's with the Bajir feels so very different from the part. Yeah, definitely. Or, like, three. There's, like, a very short (laughs) book, and then another very short book, and then a short story. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. As I was reading this at first, I thought this was the most cohesive of, like, plot structures. Yeah. But I hadn't yet gotten to where she leaves the Bajir. And I'm like, oh, this is great. And then I'm like, oh, nope, it's a mess. That one's all one plot. (laughs) Yeah, I was also confused. Yeah, because I could, like, see the plot arc coming to an end, and I was like, I'm halfway through this book. There's obviously more book. What, what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. It also feels like there's a lot of um, thematic coherence between the Bajir part and the part of, at the end where she rescues the sorceress, but then the George plotline is really just entirely... <laughs> like an un like like let's just cut away to set up for the next book, and there's no real sort of connection there or resolution to it. Um, Gus, you said that it seemed like three books. To me, it kind of feels like when we were like talking about the entire series as being one big book. This mm. seems like to me like a really serviceable middle part of a book when you're kind yeah. of like yeah. you've learned about the character, she's achieved some goals, now she goes forth and you kind of see some character development. Like I feel like a lot of books have this kind of middle like traveling or quest section and that it fits into me like that plot structure wise better than it does as like its own thing. Yeah, it's a lot of like you know, she's sort of taking a break from major plot developments and the overarching plot to, like, grow as a person. Right. And that's good. Which is cool in a book. It's, like, slightly less cool in a series. Um, I also just wanted to mention in terms of, like, general plots and tropes and stuff, the subplot of her, like, having a really special sword that breaks and then she can't fight with just a regular sword. She has to have a special (laughs) magical sword. It's such a, like, chosen one trope and I love it. Definitely. Oh, I really... Also, when her sword broke, she was so sad. Right, it's like her friend. Mm -hmm. It's like when uh, Harry's first broomstick breaks Mm -hmm. in Harry Potter. But he just replaces it. He doesn't forge a new broom. Yeah, that's true. Um, I've, like, read, you know, other fantasy books where they make a point of, like, this character is, you know, sort of down-to-earth and, uh, practical, and so they don't have a special weapon that they favor. They can use whatever weapon is available. And it's so interesting that there is sort of, you know, this fantasy trope that's so classic of having the special sword to the point that many fantasy characters don't have it because they you know, it's almost become another trope to counteract that and just say, this character doesn't have a special sword because that's ridiculous. What if the sword (laughs) broke? (laughs) Um, Yeah, another, I I mean, not that this is like our fantasy weapons tropes section, but uh, near the end, (laughs) it's talking about George, like, checking that all his knives are there. And I feel like it's very fantasy trope for your most sketchy character to have a improbably large number of knives <laughs> like all nine of his knives i wish i wish there had been a scene written into this book where someone was like you have to you know remove all your weapons before going into this room and he just kept taking them out and like you know until there's a giant <laughs> pile. i love that trope it never stops being funny uh-huh. can we talk about magic yeah let's talk about magic this is the first 
like, look, we're getting into how magic works. And it's really interesting to me that we're seeing that from the point of view of Alana as a teacher rather than a student, even though we've seen her as a student. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's really interesting to me that it's in this context that's not the, you know, sort of standard Tortolan institution, you know, Tom learned magic the, the standard way that Tortolan nobles do, which is from the priests, and Alana got taught from uh, Duke Roger as part of her page training, but this is like a whole different system of magic learning that we're seeing now, which I'm, I'm really excited by that it's magic outside of Tortolan academia. I have a reading of that that I think I like better than the reading implied by the book. Um, but I think that, um, you know, we're keeping an eye on the idea of, like, magic being this metaphor p- for power, obviously, but, like, power corrupting and that being the message yeah. behind it. So I like reading this as the idea being that institutionalized power is bad and taking advantage of the power that you have to, like tell your own story and fight your own fights and whatever outside of institutions is good. Like, hedge witches should have magic. Bazir people who are being oppressed should have magic. People who are training within the existing systems should have less magic. That's evil. Institutionalized power is evil. I would say that Tom's storyline bears it out. And even Alana's, you know, shifting views of magic um, kind of support that reading as well because she really starts this book thinking that magic is bad, evil, and poison mm-hmm. um, and tells her students as much. Um, but as she starts teaching and sees different ways that magic can be realized, you know, in thread magic, ceremonial magic, you have weather magic, and the Bajir themselves have magic, um, it kind of uh, changes her views. Yeah, I, I really like the way that magic... Uh, I just really like the the portrayal of magic in this book because I feel like in previous episodes we've sort of been talking about, you know, oh, there's some early installment weirdness of magic works this way and then it works this other different way. And in this book, we're kind of just seeing that there's a lot of ways that magic works. There's, you know, this sort of academic magic that's all these signs and symbols and there's a kind of magic where you just sort of control the power within you and make things happen. And those are mostly the kinds that Alana knows. But there's also... um, you know, prayer to the gods. There's uh, the the folksy rhymes that Alana was doing in earlier <laughs> books, which are great. There's, right, herbal magic. There's thread magic, which is, like, specifically mentioned as something mostly used by women, which is, you know, it's just really cool that there's, a, like, that magic exists in the world and there's lots of different approaches to using it because there's lots of different groups of people using it, which is awesome. Yeah, um, I was just going to mention that um, because I think, you know, listeners might be kind of like shouting this themselves if we didn't bring it up. Obviously, this <laughs> does bear through in uh, Tamara Pierce's future writing, especially, how do you say like the not tortal Emelion? Emelion. Emelion. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more exploration of uh, types of magic in there. And specifically thread magic. Yeah. And weather and <laughs> so forth. Um, So I think it's really cool that we're starting to see that emerge. And to me, it's like a much more rich magic system than the earlier books. When I was a kid, sorry, this is totally off topic. But when I was a kid, I always thought that maybe, I think it was because there was a way you could make the maps in the books line up. I always thought that that Tortal and Emelon were the same universe and just different places in the universe. (laughs) Me too. I thought that like, I, it really does seem like when you're reading them, like Tortal could be like fantasy Europe and and. I'm still not going to say it right. Emelon. The other one, Emelon, uh, could be like <laughs> fantasy 
Asia-ish because they're yeah, like pretty strong analogs. Right. I mean, there's obviously a lot of fantasy Asia in Tortal, but you know. Mm-hmm. Back to magic. I was. Mm-hmm. I finally. I don't know why I figured this. Why I didn't figure this out earlier, but there's this uh, very um, obvious direct relationship between magic and religion that I hadn't. I suppose I'd taken it for granted when I read this before. Um, but so, for example, in the book, the tribes shaman's tent (laughs) has a room for a temple um and so that implies that the pre uh the shaman is both a holy and uh you know gifted in the gifted sense person but it's also similar in i mean the priests in tortal like the mithrin priests right also have the gift, right? Right, they're the ones, at least, who that uh, that's where Tortal and nobles go to get trained in the gift is the city of the gods, which is their religious center. So this is true of both the sort of uh, main Tortalan culture and also Bazir culture, this connection between um, the gift and the gods. Mm-hmm. And this made me think, so, you know, a good number of people have the gift, but among the Bajir, uh at least initially, uh, women can't become shamans. So why don't they have more, I don't know, natural disasters of just like (laughs) these untrained girls, like knocking buildings down? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that there's totally an answer for this in canon, but um, definitely I think like they, you know, I think there might be female magic that sort of exists outside of the, the system of shamans, but also we do see uh, the sorceress at the end was a um, a Bajir woman who wanted more out of magic training than she could get from the Bajir, so she left. Oh, that's true. Uh, my other question was, can you be a priest then or a shaman without having the gift? That's a super good question. It seemed implied to me that shamans need to have the gift. Like, that seemed... To be Do you think that's also true of Mithrin priests? I wasn't reading it that way, but I don't think there's evidence one way or the other. Yeah, I suppose there was an instance of a priest in this book who didn't have magic because he was the priest of uh, that town with the sorceress. Oh, yeah. But that wasn't a Mithrin priest. That was, a, I think that was right. That was like a Scanran priest or something. Which is weird. Where did he come from? Scanra's like way to the north. <laughs> if I'm remembering that right. And he was, maybe he was like Galrin or something. Abby, always paying attention to maps. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, also just from like a world building perspective, um, the fact that if you kill the shaman, you become the shaman does not seem like it should work well no. as a system. Oh my god. I mean, what happens? Well, A, if you're not gifted, I don't like that. If you don't have the gift, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, but what do you do? Right, if, you, if you don't have the gift, if you're not like trained to be the shaman, which Alana isn't, she just knows how to do magic. Like, she can't be their religious leader. She doesn't know anything about their religion. Uh, that really made me mad. <laughs> right? But then also, what if the, your shaman is killed by, like, an enemy of your tribe? What do you do then? <laughs> Adopt them. No. Maybe. Well, that's actually what they do, though, because with Alana, she wins one duel and they adopt her. Maybe the idea is that no one would be able to kill a shaman unless, like, you know, they are an intermediary for the gods. So, like, the gods saw the opponent as a more worthy oh maybe yeah maybe this is falls into the general theme of the trial by combat thing yeah Mm -hmm. but i was really annoyed i mean 
a shaman is like, I mean, and we'll probably get into this a bit, but a shaman uh, is a thing that exists in our world, the real world, and it's a religious leader. <laughs> and uh, it seems pretty bogus that Alana just is a religious leader when she really only seems to, you know, know about Tortalan religious practices. Yeah. This is also going to come up later. Why do they have the same gods if they're such different cultures? But like, it's because the gods are real. And right, I think that that like a significant amount of this could be explained you know, sort of from a, a Watsonian perspective, like an in-universe perspective, you can explain a lot of this by saying that the gods are real. Alana is a person who is chosen by the goddess, so she is qualified to be a religious leader in that sense. But mm. from a Doyleist out-of-universe perspective, it's kind of sketchy and also maybe kind of racist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things can be both. Also, I wanted to bring up that uh, I was trying to figure out what it was that shamans did in this. Uh-huh. Because... It's strongly implied that they're a religious leader. And we don't see Alana do any of that. Nope. Or barely any of it. Yeah. I think she does teach her students some of the ceremonial magic. Yeah. It's like Alana taught her students some- Where does she learn that? We don't know. Oh, I guess that other shamans do show up and possibly help with that. True. Um, The the stuff that Alana does in her role as the shaman is um, she trains new shamans. And she also does military stuff in a role as the shaman. And so does the previous shaman. Like, that's how we're introduced to him. So, I don't know. I thought it was interesting that they're also um, a military presence. Right, I guess because they're they're just sort of designated magic user of the tribe. So things that Alana does as magic user of the tribe are maybe some religious stuff, training the other magical members of the tribe, um, but also magical healing and magical combat because those are just things that they use magic for in this world Mm -hmm. but right it's really interesting that that's all one role right and no other members of the tribe can be trained to use magic so there's no secession of the shaman where somebody's already like pretty good at magic and then they're going to be the next shaman because none of the other people in the tribe can be trained only one person can have magic i mean it's it's possible that if the shaman was better than the one that Alana replaces, they would be training other members of the tribe with magic mm-hmm. at least a little bit. As apprentices. Right. Yeah, when they bring them to the school, they do have, like, students. So that's good. But it just seems like, I don't know, it's very silly that I get that it's, like, superstition and possibly other beliefs coming up. But if you have a lot of people who can use magic and that magic can be used to defend your tribe or heal your people... Why do you, are mm-hmm. you just like, oh, sounds evil? Yeah, I, I, I think to some extent that might have just been that one shaman trying to sort of preserve his own power. I also kind of just want to believe, I don't think there's really textual evidence for this, but like in my heart, I kind of believe that, um, you know, the very knowledgeable midwife possibly also has her own magic thing going on and maybe the women of the tribe have their own sort of separate magic tradition. That's what I always kind of presumed. Yeah, Farda. I did kind of think that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of my, my theory, especially Especially, like, there's multiple references to, like, the women of the tribe have their own thing going on. They just kind of don't care about what the men tell them (laughs) to do. Uh, It's very, it's not brought up in a good way. (laughs) And it's also not a great thing overall. But it could mean that they have secret magic practices, which I like. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think we're we're getting pretty far into uh, social justice corner here. So let's just make a quick stop by the very fast linguistics part of the show and then actually head to social justice corner for real there's two things that i wanted to mention about very fast linguistics so yeah here aurora why don't you go okay so i found 
an amusing instance of semantic ambiguity. Ooh. Okay. So George goes to the dancing delve and says that it's frequented by uh, you know, thieves, flower sellers, um, yeah. and quote unquote rogue priests. So yeah. I ask you, does this mean that these are priests of the rogue? Or I think the better one would be priests gone rogue. <laughs> Either way, I'm super intrigued, but I'm kind of loving the ambiguity there. Love it. The R wasn't capitalized, so I assumed it was the latter. It's just priests really out on the town. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I don't even know what the rogue priest would be doing, but I guess the, the court of the rogue is just for anyone who's like being a little sketchy. I don't know, like <laughs> breaking the law a little bit. Are they just corrupt priests? I don't know. It would be cool if they were priests who were like, uh, like I, I want them to be like radical priests, you know, <laughs> going against the oppressive parts of their religious doctrine or something like that. Oh, that would be so good. That's just how I'm going to read that every time. <laughs> every time it comes up again, which it never will. And it's semantically ambiguous. So you have, yeah, you're perfectly licensed to do that. Um, all right. This is my fast linguistics thing. It might be yours too, Abby. Um, if they have distinct histories, we learn about the history of the Bazir tribe and it's different from Tartalan history. If they have mm -hmm. very distinct cultures, why do they speak completely the same mutually intelligible language. This is very related to my linguistics thing, which is that when they're doing the um, the ritual uh, to transfer who is the voice, they mention that um, Ali Muktab, who is, by the way, didn't know he was coming back in this book, very excited about it, even though, you know, we'll talk <laughs> about this later. you would die. Yeah, well, or and sad. colonialism and stuff. Yes. Um, <laughs> but anyway, when when they're doing the ritual, he speaks an ancient Bazir language from when they lived in stone buildings across the Inland Sea. They have an ancient language that's not the same language that Tortolans speak, but they don't speak it anymore, I guess. So, I mean, maybe it's just a colonialism thing. But I really want to know more about this original language. Yeah, that's what I meant when I was saying, like, Bazir history. And also, like, their names are very different from Tartalan names. And a lot of them do not look like they're... They look like they're transposing a different phonetic system. Like, if you went from Arabic to English. Because they're, like, all Tortalan names look like our phonetic system. Where they're usually, like, have vowels. And then, like, <laughs> uh, Bazir names have, like, I-B-N or something like that, which we wouldn't have in English. Seems like yeah, they wouldn't have true. in Tartalan. Why does it appear in Vizier? They have different phonetic systems, but the same language? What's happening? Right, I mean, it's really interesting that, like, you know, so some fantasy worlds and, like, sci-fi worlds just don't get into the question of language. They're just like, everyone speaks the same language. But we are getting to a point in Tortal where they're starting to reference the fact that you know, the Bazir have this ancient language that's not the same language, so at some point they spoke a different language, and then they switched to speaking Tortalan, I guess. And what in the history would account for them, like, all learning Tortalan and for some reason deciding that politically that made the most sense? How long have they been colonized for? How long has, Tor has Tortal, the Tortalan Empire, been occupying Bajir land? I'm not sure we know. I mean, at least a couple generations. But also, they're, they've been occupying the land, but many tribes, including the Bloody Hawk tribe, uh, do not recognize the king of Tortal. Do not assimilate. Right. It's odd that they would be speaking the language and not speaking their own language. I wonder if this is not just for convenience. Yeah. It's a bit of a, you know, <laughs> plot hole. It doesn't make sense linguistically. Even a 
you know, peoples that spend a lot of time isolated from other people will end up having a, their own distinct dialect. And mm -hmm. so this could just be an oopsie. <laughs> I mean, it's also true that there's been, uh, you know, hundreds of years of cultural exchange of some kind between the Bazir and the Tortalans. So maybe they've just uh, adopted a, some sort of common language for, you know, some kind of communication. I don't know. The, the linguistics in this universe are not <laughs> perhaps entirely, like, well thought out, but, you know, it, it is kind of a classic fantasy trope to just have common or whatever, and that's maybe that's sort of what Tortolan is. I accept that that's a trope, but I would also just like to say, like, I mean, an analog would be, like, in Quebec, they speak French because they want to seem distinct from people who speak English, uh -huh. partially. Uh, but wouldn't you expect tribes that are actively warring with Tortal not to speak Tortalan as, like, a political act? Yeah. Like, that's how languages usually work. Same with, with uh, like, people in Israel uh, adopting Hebrew and, you know, so many groups of marginalized people really making an effort to keep their language alive. You'd really think that if the Bajir have an ancient language that's their language, why are they not teaching it to their tribe and speaking that? Right. And I don't want to, like, obviously this is the kind of thing where it's a little bit fraught because, you like, it's not like we want to critique the actions of a marginalized group. What we want to do is critique the writing choices. Well, the writing of this fictional marginalized group, yes. Right, yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of like, you know, you can always defend a female character's actions in fiction by saying... Well, she, you know, feminism, she can do what she wants. She can make her choices to dress really skimpy. But you have to look yeah. at also who is drawing her really skimpy because she's a fictional character and she's not actually making those choices. Thank you. Uh, right. And once again, as with all of our segments, this segment is down a slippery slope towards social justice corner. I think we <laughs> need to accept that this is a social justice room. Right. Uh, <laughs> all the corners are social justice corners. It is also the yell zone all the time. <laughs> but I would also make the point that, like, we have to ask an author if they're going to choose to represent a situation in which one group is um, oppressed, they need to represent that group as an oppressed group. Otherwise, they're licensing mm -hmm. oppression. And mm -hmm. I think that that's definitely something that will come up yep. as we continue. Okay, but so risking making this not very fast linguistics, I have one more thing to say really quick, uh, which is related to what I was talking about last time, and the last time we did very fast linguistics, which is um, George and Miles listen to Claw talk and think that he must be a noble because he talks like a noble, which I was very sort of happy to see in comparison to Jem Tanner, who just, I guess, talked like a Tortolan commoner. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he was a, no a noble from a different country. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we we can probably chalk this up to, like, Jem Tanner is a really good spy who can disguise his voice. But I was glad to see with Claw, they, you know, a noble can't just automatically pass for a commoner. Right, that's good. Kat, have we told our podcast friends that, like, the majority of our cast studied linguistics. Five out of seven people involved in this podcast are linguists. It's fine. So sorry for the focus <laughs> on linguistics, but not sorry because yeah. we like to talk about it. Anyway, but this was enough very fast linguistics. Let's go on to the section we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Social justice corner. <laughs> I'd like to start this section by just acknowledging that in like dividing what we've been doing and dividing up like 
this into race and gender and like queerness and stuff is that you know it's like it's a it's a way for us to you know structure things and kind of keep keep ourselves on task but also it's like kind of bad intersectionally that's a good point Gus. yeah i think it's gonna get real intersectional in this one so the sections might blend a little bit but maybe do we want to try starting with the with any sort of uh gender and queer stuff that is not also racialized because i have some of that i mean all of them all of it's gonna be filtered through race especially in this book yeah but go ahead Okay, no, but, okay, I'm really sorry. This is probably going to be the last time I bring this oh up. Oh, my God. But we do have an appearance of the jeweled wizard rod, or a jeweled wizard <laughs> rod, made by Roger. He's a jeweler. They specifically bring this up. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that in this book, they bring up the fact that he's a famous amateur jeweler, which is hilarious. <laughs> I loved that, too, so much. He made his own rod. Yeah, I think it's delightful. Yeah. It's great. So I don't even really have anything to say about that. I was just delighted to learn that he was a famous amateur <laughs> jeweler. <laughs> no, but even that, you know, he made his own rod. He made the sword. And then, you know, swords are always referencing something in the literature. <laughs> in the literature. Are we just projecting here? <laughs> Loki. A little bit, maybe. Okay, but the, so the other thing that I wanted to just sort of mention was um, last month-ish... Our book club that several of us are in read uh, Viscera by uh, Gabriel Squalia? Squalia? I don't know how you pronounce his third name. But uh, that had that was a fantasy book with just, like, the best binding practices. Or, like, the binding practices were bad some of the time, but it was very much acknowledged. And then in this book, Alana bought, brought up the fact that she was binding her chest with bandages every day for, like, seven years and doing hard physical activity, and it just was really upsetting. Very dangerous. Okay, two comments on that. One, uh, for one thing, when she was telling that story, uh, Kurem was uh, familiar with the practice of binding, and I find that interesting, and I like it. Uh, two <laughs> is that while there are um, unsafe, certainly, like, the, the you know, wisdom in in among tra trans people is that uh using bandages to bind is unsafe there have been and like of course there's been no science done on this um yes and that there like may be ways to do that safely don't do it though kids don't do it don't use bandages right well and also don't do it all day every day for seven years while doing hard physical activity yeah that's more important that's way more important Gus, thank you. And how much of the time do you think uh, I find that interesting is code for I think that's queer? Is it 90% of the time? Because that's what it is in my life. As a Minnesotan, sometimes I find that interesting is I find that offensive. But the rest of the time, I would say that it, it is I find that queer and I just don't want to say it in that way for whatever reason. I want to sound smart, I guess, which is bullshit. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's queer. Yeah, um, no, I cool. think that's a solid reading. Thank you. And right, we don't know, you know, we, we have some idea that queerness is not a big part of Tortolan culture, but we really have no idea about queerness in Bajir culture. Yeah, I'm not sure, um, maybe we don't have a ton of queerness stuff uh, to go through in this book, which is why I want to kind of get this out of the way, but I do think that we have, like, 
our strongest so far canon confirmation that Tom is queer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes. Uh, when he writes the letter and he says of Delia, I'm not interested in her in that way, um, I would say, you know, we can kind of check that off. Like, yes, in the canon, strongly implied, which we've we've talked about it before. So I believe the phrasing is, I'm not interested in the lady as mm-hmm. such. Right. I mean, it's not... He's not literally saying, I'm gay, but it's pretty close. <laughs> he's pretty much saying he's not interested in women. Like, you could, you could say he's not just, in, just not interested in Delia, but I would not read it that way. I mean, I also still read both Miles and Alana as queer, part of which is kind of textually supported, some of which... I just partially I definitely Um, just want to choose to read Miles as queer because it's like so much better that way I think Miles could be strongly supported in the like confirmed bachelor way which is like pretty I mean pretty solid for the time period that they're writing about and for the time period the historical time period (laughs) I'm sorry I had to bring it up the historical time period you know sword time sword time exactly I had a a quote (laughs) that I like latched on to uh, from Alana, where she says, uh, after spending a, a good bit of time with the Bajir, she's like, you know, it's funny. I've learned more about women since coming here. Yes. You know, pages and squires, they didn't spending, mu- they weren't spending much time with women. And then she grinned and said, I was notoriously shy when it came to girls. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then she says she likes women. <laughs> it's great. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm like, yes, you do. I loved it. Yeah, she does. <laughs> I also will say just from a, a like, textual support for Alana being queer. This is like a dig that Tom makes at her kind of, but in his letter he says something about, you know, you're a, I guess you're a man of the tribe now, which is what you always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And like, thanks Tom. That's nice of you. Did Alana <laughs> object to that or did I just have strong feelings about that? No, he he writes in his letter like, you know, don't scowl. Uh and and then it cuts to like Alana was scowling. Okay. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I also, like, I read her, um, like, upset and panic about being found unfeminine as, like, a very mm. a queer feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, or just, like, interacting. I realize that she has a lot going in, on in her life surrounding gender. But yeah, I still read it as very queer to be thinking about gender in that way yeah. and that much. Well, she, yeah, she does have a very unique experience with gender insofar, like, as far as, like, she doesn't know anybody else who has had the same experience with gender as she has. So, of course, she's going to be, like, struggling with that. Definitely. Yeah, I had one other thing that was sort of related to queerness and also just, like, the patriarchy, which is um, <laughs> she's telling her, you know, young protégés uh, about how she dressed up as a girl. And one of them asks, uh, did your brother dress up as a... Or, sorry, yes. When she dressed up as a boy, one of them asked, uh, did your brother also dress up as a girl? Um, and she's like, she like laughs and says, of course not. Which like, the only reason that it's more ridiculous for a boy to dress up as a girl than a girl to dress up as a boy is because of like the patriarchy. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course it's more ridiculous for boys to wear dresses than girls to wear pants. Like, uh, it's bad shit. I just resented it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> noticed that too. Um, I would like to, in this sort of section of Social Justice Corner, also check in on our monitoring of the the women of the court of the rogue um in this book uh in this book alana talks about the women of the court of the rogue and then 
immediately it's very clear that to her that means prostitutes, which I'm mad about. And so we've like confirmed men of the court are thieves, women are prostitutes, and I'm just like, you know, no. I mean, like nothing against sex work, sex work is real work, but anyone can be either a thief or a sex worker and it doesn't fall in a gender binary. And so, F off. Yeah, no, it was, <laughs> it was bad. But also, like, uh, I wanted to mention that Alana specifically says some of the most intelligent women that she knew growing up were prostitutes, which is hypothetically, you know, women that she hung out with in the court of the rogue. So why did we never see that in the last two books? Yeah, good, good, good point. I also, I've, I have a lot of swear words in my notes, and I'm going to do my best <laughs> not to say any of them out loud. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I also have a lot of swear words. So many of my notes are just calling John various names in the margins <laughs> of my book. Oh my gosh, me too. I had to PGify uh, them as I put them into my type notes. Nice. <laughs> oh my god. Um, uh, do we want to finish talking about notably everything going on with John. Oh. Oh yeah, why don't let's let's do John. Oh, yeah. Oh god, he's so bad. Guess we'd all erased it from our minds and then then you brought it back. I mean, this is like we, you know, the like he's also very bad in a race way, but like oh man, <laughs> the marriage stuff. Oh, he's entitled, he's spoiled. Oh, so it's so toxic. Yeah, I'd mm-hmm. like to note though that this is toxic behavior that this is that is being marked as toxic by the narrative. Right. It's so it's so much better to read because Alana hates it and calls it out. Right. As opposed to in the last book. Yeah. And you know, Miles supports her. Miles is I'm so I love Miles. We'll probably talk about this more in the next episode too. But mm-hmm. Miles like you know, I mean I read him as queer for a few reasons, but like he's also just the only one not supporting like the heteropatriarchy by telling her, Hey, everything would be really great if you got married to a man. Get married to a man who you who she clearly kind of hates. Like she remarks a number uh-huh. of times she's like, She loved John, but she really didn't like him very much. And she hated listening to him <laughs> and she wanted to put her ear hands over her ears when he talked. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> right, and she she does say, like, oh, I think he's a good man, but I just don't like him. <laughs> so why would you even consider getting married to him? No, but I love how, you know, she asks Miles for his advice, and he tells her, you know, you want to think through this, you should do what you want, and when she says what she thinks, he's like, I think that's good. You're having some good thoughts. I believe in you and your autonomy, and I'm like, oh, this is everything. So supportive. I love Miles. He just supports her and her choices. Everyone else, the freaking cat is saying like, hey, you should consider getting married to John. And Miles is saying, make your own choices. It's good that you're considering this carefully. We know that the cat's been bad before, though. Yeah, the cat is supports the patriarchy more than I would like. Faithful is my animal enemy in this book. Um, <laughs> yeah, same. Because he's definitely gaslighting her. Hmm. Faithful tells her that she provoked John, and that's why he insulted her. He says, like, well, you did provoke him. It's terrible. Yeah, no, it, She. he says, you provoked John into saying the things he did. You know how proud he is. If you hadn't pushed him, he probably would never have even thought you were unfeminine, which is absurd and totally victim-blaming. Right, and just, like, textbook abuse. Yeah, it's not something you want in a relationship. Like, Right, and the fact that he's proud is not an excuse for him insulting her no. and yelling at her and, you know, making assumptions about her. That's, you know, the, the fact that he's proud, that's just a negative attribute. That doesn't excuse <laughs> anything. Yeah, you could just be like, well, you know he's a jerk. Really, you shouldn't have said those things, and you should have known he would be a jerk. 
No, if he's a jerk, don't hang out with him. Right. Yeah, anything else to say about John? I mean, yes, but we can say... Uh, we're just angry about it. I mean, like, we could go <laughs> over it point by point, but the general gist is just we're angry. And I, um, I don't know, a lot of, like, the way that the relationship is portrayed, like, outside of John's behavior, outside of Alana's behavior, like, narratively, really was grating to me, like, when they have the conversation about... Um, she says, you should marry a virgin. And he says, you were a virgin when we first made love. And then she's like, no. Oh, yeah, that's a good thing to talk about. Also, just that the, their society thinks that uh, that sh- he should marry a virgin, that Alana thinks that a reasonable thing to say is that, like, you should marry a virgin. Um, also, just, like, for the future, curious about whether he actually does end up marrying a virgin but we can talk about that more later right and then she says well uh he says you were a virgin when we first made love and she says no everyone will think now that i've been revealed to be a girl that i slept with everybody like all these people and Uh, um like yeah that's crazy like that that's wild the idea that she has to make that excuse and that that's part of her how she thinks everyone perceives her is very sad and that especially that she thinks that everyone perceives her that way and to her that's a very negative thing like that just makes me really sad and I think that the narrative is really um you know presenting some unhealthy things. Gus your face was having some thoughts. My face is having some thoughts um there's a line at some point um when John says no, no, sorry. Alana is thinking and she's like, you know, which one of us changed? And here's the thing. It's not John. John has been acting like this the yeah, whole time. Yeah, no, he's been bad the whole time. This is just John, you know, like, there were the warning signs. We've found the warning signs. Um, mm-hmm. He's been a jerk before. So, like, I don't know if it's that Alana has changed or that the situation has changed. Right, well, Alana used to be... Alana used to be a baby and she was getting taken advantage of and now she doesn't want to be anymore. And I also like, I also wanted to note we probably shouldn't get too deep into this because we've more than covered it in past episodes, but Alana still has yet to have a like narratively dense physical encounter that's not really rough and non-consensual. Every part of, every physical encounter she has that's, like, intimate has an element of somebody forcing her or uh, throwing her somewhere, blah, blah, blah. I mean, right, it it is implied in this book that she is having intimate relationships with with both John and George that are, you know, enjoyable for her, but we don't get to actually see those. The ones that we do get to see are them kissing her without consent. There's a time in this book when George, like you know, grabs her and throws her onto a bed, and this is implied to be a thing that she's enjoying, but also we just never get to see them have a sort of, like, you know, normal, just, like, fun sexual encounter. No, or one where she takes initiative, or, like, it's clear that what the narrative feels it's worth to explain in that realm is, like, this, this style of stuff. I mean, it's gotten to the point where even she's, like, when George is not, you know, he's just carefully, like, bringing her flowers, etc. And she says, if he's courting me, I wish he wouldn't be so subtle about it. And I'm like, this, you've learned all of the wrong things. This is not, like, she's internalized so many toxic things. It's terrible. And she's worried that he thinks she, 
uh, that he thinks that she's unfeminine. Oh, it just, it made me very angry and sad. But, I mean, something I, I do really appreciate about this book is that, you know, she meets women, she learns things from women, there's so many cool women oh, in this yeah. book, she figures out what it means to be a woman, and, you know, along with that, she, uh, you know, is able to make her own choices and say, no, this relationship with John is not what I want, which is so much better. It's so good. Yeah, way cooler. And she also... She learns to value women's work and see, like, a lot of value in femininity, which in the past she hasn't really been giving access to, so I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, she, right, it's so cool how, I mean, the the whole thing with the thread magic, where she's talking about how, you know, women have this knowledge of thread, which uh, makes them more uh, able to pick up this type of magic that academic mages don't really use as much, that's super cool. Um and the, yeah, I mean, the the mistress uh, Farrar or, or whatever her name is who teaches her. Um, but right, there's just, you know, there's there's these two examples of sort of like um, elder women of the tribe that Alana really learns from, which is awesome. But then there's also, you know, the cool sorceress at the end. There's her female protégés. There's uh, Rispa. She has friends that are girls who are her peers. Right, and who like do things. It's very exciting. <laughs> And yeah, I, I feel like the fact that she has this support system of, um, I mean, both her good dads, especially Miles, who support her decisions, and also these women who are, you know, letting her figure out how to be a woman, a woman, sorry, <laughs> um, and, and learn things, is, it helps a lot. And it it's so much better than when she was so isolated in the last book. Right. And that, yeah. to me, like, that was some of the times that were hardest to read, because um, you yeah. know, personally, like, uh, learning from other people who, like, can share your experiences. It's so important, especially when it comes to, like, femininity. I think it's really empowering to have people around you, or um, I think probably for a lot of people in a lot of experiences, it's just very important to have that. And I felt bad that Alana didn't, so I'm excited she does now. Yeah, it's really good. Um, okay, so why don't we uh, wrap up, do our, our new segment here. And uh, then next time we will tackle all of the race stuff, which is going to take a while. Yeah, it's going to be a whole episode. It's like only going to be about race. Yep, basically. Um, In the meantime, we have our new section, which we're going to do at the end of both episodes for each book, even though we record all in one session, uh, which is Palace Gossip, where we read some listener mail and talk about that. So, uh, right, because we only record once a month, there might be a bit of a delay on this in terms of when people send in mail versus when we read it, but let's read some now. We had two letters about the same topic here that I wanted to read that were related to what we were talking about. One is Hulklinging asked or uh, mentioned, uh, they sent us a, an ask on Tumblr uh, where they mentioned that um, they believe that uh, flower sellers are slaying in the universe possibly mentioned in Becca Cooper for sex workers, uh, which makes the yanking a flower seller onto his lap line extra not great. And um, relatedly, Emma Bates sent us a very nice email where they mentioned that um, their women is a euphemistic way, or possibly, of saying they're prostitutes and that they've come across flower seller as being a euphemism for prostitute before. Um, So this all just sort of ties together with the idea that the flower seller that we mentioned in the previous book and possibly most of the women that we meet following the rogue are 
in fact prostitutes and how does that play into our previous discussion of them right because well first of all thanks so much for bringing that to our attention because i don't think we really knew that those were explicit euphemisms yeah no i did a little just googling and it does seem like possibly during victorian times or something people who were uh referred to as flower sellers were sometimes sex workers so that's interesting didn't know that Apparently, Tamara Pierce did. Um, and thought it fit to put in a book for children. Uh, so that's a cool, 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 cool time. Well, it was so euphemistic that it went over our heads. Right, but but they do, in this book that we just read, they do specifically mention that Alana knew a lot of prostitutes in the Court of the Rogue growing up. Which, again, really wish that we had seen that on screen at all. Or on the page, you know. And they are getting more mm-hmm. grown up. Yeah, it's true. It's interesting that this is a this is a series that was initially one book, but they are sort of growing up over the course of the series uh, to the point where they can actually use the word prostitute. Yeah, it's very interesting and talk about um, sex a lot more explicitly. I mean, I think it's good, but it's definitely, it's an interesting element. I would say that um, I, I'm trying to think back about what we've said on this subject in past podcasts because I know we have talked about it quite a bit. I know that we were frustrated that the, uh, at the idea that this was dichotomizing the idea of being a thief and being a woman. So maybe it's not. Maybe it's dichotomizing the idea of being a thief and being a prostitute. So maybe there are still women otherwise in the court. I don't know if that's a fix. I just want to bring it up as an idea that maybe it's giving more nuance to the presentation. It does seem, especially with the use of the phrase, they're women, as possibly referring to prostitutes, it does definitely imply that all of the prostitutes involved are female, and probably all of the thieves... Well, I mean, we don't know about the thieves, but we never hear any sort of reference to a male thief, or a female thief, that except for Rispa, maybe. It's sort of unclear in this book whether Rispa is a thief, or she's the queen of the ladies who follow the rogue, but it's... I mean, it's not even clear who those ladies are. Well, following the rogue to me is analogous to um, the idea of like women following after armies or women following um, pirates is an an example I have. Um, But it makes it seem like she's sort of the equivalent of like a brothel owner. Well, I don't know that she, uh, you know, I don't know that she would have the role of like a madam where she would actually be in charge of their prostitution business necessarily. Because, I mean, George... George maybe takes a cut of what the thieves do. I don't know. But he's, you know, he's their leader, but he's not necessarily their boss, I don't think. Um, well, it does, he talks about, like, there are diamond thieves. There was this, like, string of diamond thieves that happened without his right. uh, authority or something like that. So it does make it seem like he's doing some, like, uh, detail work. Yeah, I think he takes, like, taxes. He takes a cut. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's a he's a monarch, but he doesn't run all of the business of thieving. And similarly, I kind of doubt that Rispa is, like, personally managing the prostitutes. You you know, maybe she takes a cut of what they do, but I don't know, hard to say. But as Aurora mentioned earlier in this episode, um, you know, we get a list of people who follow the rogue in this book, and it includes flower sellers and prostitutes and also things like rogue priests. So clearly, I think, it you know, there is somewhat of an implication that possibly just anyone who's breaking the law is, uh, uh, like, could be a follower of the rogue. Also, Mm. I don't know if we know that prostitution is illegal in Tortal. True. Oh, good point. Yeah, I don't really know if we have evidence on that, but... Yeah, so it brings, it brings a lot of nuance to our conversation. Yeah, um, 
But it, it gives us a lot more to think about on that topic. And I would say, given this new information, we'll definitely want to uh, continue to keep an eye on um, this, the mm-hmm. dynamics of the Court of the Rogue. Yeah. No, and I, I think it's interesting that we would get that, you know, in the Hand of the Goddess uh, in in the hand of the goddess, which uh, <laughs> is you know, despite it's fairly adult and upsetting subject matter, re- like a pretty middle grade book, it's interesting that that we would get uh, you know a euphemistic reference to prostitution in the court of the rogue, without still without getting any female thieves, probably. All we want are female thieves, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we'll see how that goes in the future. Um, should we read some stuff, like, people who have been... Ta- should we, like, thank some people for yeah. talking to us? Specifically, thank you to um, Emma and Hulklinging for sending in those uh, those letters. And we would be happy to get more letters and questions from anyone. Also, if you just want to tell us, you know, your favorite moments of animal friendship or anything like that, we'd be happy to read those as well. We love hearing your thoughts and feelings about, like, anything related to these books. Yeah, it's really exciting. So, okay, I did want to mention specifically uh, thank you to uh, Transcorianic for uh, being our first fan and giving us our first tum- uh, iTunes review. And also um, Ziggy, who keeps talking about us on both uh, Tumblr and Ziggy is also Hulklinging. Uh, but they, they've been talking about us on Twitter and Tumblr and really just promoting us a lot, so thank you to those two people especially. Um, but also thanks in general to writer S.T. McGee, Julia Albano, Paige Knorr, Aiden Niverville, Indigo Han, Moss Lamb, and Stealth Word Nerd for tweeting about us, and to Zombie and Wandering and Found for tumblring about us. And also to Tales on Fire for giving us our second iTunes review. And we should we should mention that there there was another um, letter that got sent in, right? We'll get yeah. to that next episode. We got, yeah, we got a couple other messages and things, so we will we'll read more letters in the future, and it may not always be in the next episode after you send them in. But thank you if you wrote us a letter. We also had um, a email, or however we got that, somebody asked us to do transcripts, and we thought that was a great idea, and we're definitely um, going to try and get that uh, project underway within the next couple of weeks. Um, I realized that if you're waiting for a transcript to consume the show, this might not be the best way to get a message to you. Yeah, we'll post about this <laughs> on the internet also, but yeah, it, I think it's really important to do, especially because a bunch of us are like, you know, uh, linguists with ties to ASL <laughs> and deaf culture, so it really seems like the responsible thing to do. And right, so thank you to um, HB, who was the perf- person who suggested that. Yeah, so you guys are all really awesome. And thanks, everybody. Thanks to um, our, like, Twitter followers. And yeah. uh, uh, I guess this is a weird thing to be doing, but thanks to Witch Please for retweeting us. Oh, my gosh. We got to say thank you to them. Witch Please is the best. <laughs> and it's the best, you guys. Um, but, yeah, I personally am just, like, really blown away that we have people who want to uh, listen to us and talk to us. And so thank you so much. So if you uh, want to contact us and have not previously done so, uh, you can do that uh, at Tortal Recall. Just yell into the night and we'll hear you with your, our yelling powers. No, don't don't yell no. into the night. We won't get that. And we do actually want to hear what you have to say. Yes. <laughs> you can also yell it into the night, but make sure that you like 
courtesy copy us yeah, on Twitter yeah. at <laughs> Recall or on Tumblr. Our Tumblr is tortellrecall.tumblr.com. Um, you can find us on iTunes and Google Play. Yep. Um, uh, and a few and... others, Stitcher, Acast, most places, really. Um, lots of podcatchers. But yeah, if you want to um, rate and review us on iTunes especially, that is very helpful. You can also listen to us on our website, which is tortellrecall.com. And did you say that you can email us? At tortallrecall at gmail.com. Oh, uh, no. Well, you can do that, too. I did not say that. <laughs> Thank you, Abby. <laughs> or you can yell into the night, and I will hear you. Wow. Perfect. That's very magical. Um, well, great. Uh, this has been very fun. We'll be back with the second half of this uh, book experience. Catch you later, tortellini. <laughs> <laughs>